Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, Reiki practitioner, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and is not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, submit it on the podcast page at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join our Facebook group, Wellness Wellness Podcast Tribe. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. I have an information-packed episode for you guys today. You are going to love it. But first, I just want to tell you a few reminders, personal reminders about my business. First of all, this is going to be the last month I'm running my huge Reiki promotion for in-person clients. So if you're a local to San Diego and want an in-person session with me, make sure you book this month so you get that huge discount before I go back to regular pricing. If you don't live in San Diego, you can always have a distance session with me as well. You can book for either of those services on my services page, christinaricewellness.com slash services. Distance sessions are just as effective as in-person sessions. It's just a different experience, but after the session, we will talk about everything that happened so you're not just left hanging with the session. I give all my feedback and, um, you know, when you work with me, it's a little bit more than just traditional Reiki. It's intuitive work as well, which is a lot of fun. And if you don't know about Reiki, you can go to my website and read my post all about Reiki healing if you just search Reiki or that's also linked on my services page as well. I've also been on a few podcasts talking about that. I've been on the Balancing Your Hustle podcast and Meg Dahl's Unbreakable You podcast where I talk a lot about Reiki and I know I've had people on this podcast as well who've shared their experiences receiving Reiki if you are curious what that is like. So I just wanted to let you know that that promotion is near its end. Also, I have received a few questions about my membership section of my website. So when you join as a member on my website, you get access to an exclusive part of the site where you receive exclusive blog posts. So you have access to all of my weekly health blog posts. You have access to weekly workouts, to weekly recipes, the Q&A section where you can ask me anything you want anonymously, and the free download of my ebook, Paleo Basics. A lot of the everyday recipes I make in my own life, you guys asked me for the recipes for those, and that's all in that ebook. When you sign up, it's a monthly subscription, and you are free to cancel at any time. So if you join and you don't want to continue, you can always cancel, although I don't think you will. It's very cheap for all the information you receive and that is also where I share a lot of the information I used to reserve for just clients because I'm seeing far less clients now. And yet another thing, if you are in San Diego and you want to stay up to date on any in-person meetups, hangouts, go to my Instagram, Christina Rice Wellness, and in my link tree, there's a link to a Facebook page called San Diego Wellness Meetups, and I just made a little Facebook group so like-minded people in the area could could see if I want to try and coordinate a meetup or if anyone else wants to coordinate one. 
we can post in there just to create more of a community. So you can find the link to that Facebook page on my Instagram bio link tree. Or if you just search on Facebook, San Diego Wellness Meetups, you can request to be a part of the group. I am hosting a little get together this weekend at Roots Bulls in Hillcrest. If anyone wants to join me, I posted about it in that group as well. It's going to be at 1.30 at Roots on Saturday. So if you're in San Diego, join. I would love to see you. I'm also going to start doing either monthly or bi-monthly beauty counter events. If anybody's interested in learning more about the products or learning more about the consultant opportunity, this will be the place where I'll also share about when those events will be. You can get together, eat some good food, talk about beauty, talk about non-toxic lifestyle. And if you want to learn more about the company, you know, Beauty Counter is such an important part of my life, my business. And I would love to teach you guys more about what's going on in the beauty industry, talk about some great products. So I'm really excited to start doing those, those events more frequently. So that will be the place where they will be posted. I'm definitely going to do one of those in the next few weeks as well. So join that Facebook group. This is why I love being in San Diego because it's so much easier to meet up with people, like host meetups, have events, and the community here is amazing. I've been connecting with so many awesome people. I feel very blessed. So I'm very glad I live here now, honestly. LA was just it's kind of a nightmare trying to get anyone to come out to anything. There isn't traffic in San Diego, though, so people come. Speaking of which, I'm super excited because I just finalized a recording date to record with Danielle, one of the co-founders of ClearStem. You guys know I love ClearStem skincare. Danielle and my friend Kaylee founded this company. It's an incredible non-toxic skincare line. They just did a whole rebrand, relaunch. They released so many incredible new products that I am obsessed with and you need to check out if you haven't already. Their OG skincare product that I have been using and raving about forever is their Cell Renew. This is their collagen infusion serum. This is the product I recommend everybody get their hands on. It is great for all skin types, including dry skin, mature skin, sensitive skin, blemish prone skin, combination skin, and normal skin. I love these products because they are targeted towards anti-aging and anti-acne, and pretty much everyone I know wants one or both of those benefits, so it really is great for everybody, and it works to balance out your skin's oil production naturally. It's great because it really helps to fade any leftover scars or marks left behind after breakouts. It's also anti-aging in general, it's calming, and it's totally non-toxic, as I mentioned. The collagen stem cells inside are paired with their targeted botanical extracts, and these work together to help the skin regenerate quickly, aid in cellular renewal, and also balance out your complexion overall. This is great to be used every morning, every evening, on top of clean skin, cleaner skin. Put some of the Cell Renew on top, let it soak in, and then you can add on any other skincare products you're using. It's also great for any post-peel care or after laser treatments, microneedling, dermaplaning, threading, any other skincare treatments. And it's great for any burns. So if you get a sunburn, if you get any type of chemical burn or have any scarring anywhere on your body, it really helps to reduce that. Plus, it's so gentle, yet really helps with the acne side of things. So, I mean, I've had so many of you, I've had young girls who are struggling with hormonal acne tell me this has completely changed their skin without drying it out. I've had older women who have lots of red marks, dark marks, just from 
aging over the years, sunspots, and they've been using this and say it's made a huge difference in their complexion, which is amazing. So it really helps everybody. And I love that my skin is naturally so oily. And when I use this regularly, it just helps keep it clear and I'm not so oily. So I don't have to worry about that anymore. Yet, if somehow my skin gets super dry, like if I get a sunburn or something's weird with the weather, it actually helps my skin balance out so my skin is no longer dry. So it's just a really great balancing product. One of my favorite new products from them is the Clarity. This is their AHA PHA Acid Serum. This is also great for all skin types, but this is a little more aggressive than the Cell Renew. This is a mandelic acid base it will make a big change in your skin it's going to exfoliate to help accelerate your skincare results they have a really specific acid blend a specific ph it's been stabilized with bioflavonoids and you will get skin that's brighter healthier dewier free of any blemishes breakouts will disappear faster and fine lines this is a strong chemical exfoliant so you want to ease into it and you also want to apply it onto clean skin and then let it just chill out for 15 to 30 minutes. Let it do its job. And then you can go back and add on any of your other skincare products. You want to start using it just in the evening, maybe every other day or so. And then you can move up to every day and then maybe in the morning as well. But because it is a chemical exfoliant, you do want to ease your way into it. This is amazing for any scars, acne. I'll put a little bit extra of this if I have a spot and it works really well as a spot treatment as well. And then their other two new products, the Vitamin Scrub and the Gentle Clean are two of their face washes. The Vitamin Scrub, it has little exfoliating beads in there just to help with some physical exfoliation, but it's not too rough on the skin like other exfoliating cleansers. It's infused with antioxidants, it's smoothing, it's decongesting, it's brightening, it's amazing. And then the Gentle Clean is just the vitamin infused calming wash. So this doesn't have any of the beads in it. It is just a very nice clean gentle cleanser that works with every skin type and it helps to get rid of makeup it nourishes the skin it's non-drying and it smells absolutely amazing so if you're interested in trying out clear stem skincare go to clearstemskincare.com and use my discount code wellness w-e-l-l-n-e-s-s for $15 off of your purchase again that's clearstemskincare.com and you can use my discount code wellness w-e-l-l-n-e-s-s for $15 off peruse around make sure you check out their list of pore clogging ingredients it's really useful to have on hand if you are still struggling with clogged pores breakouts whiteheads blackheads compare your most used face products to that list and if there are any of those ingredients on your face products those might be causing those clogged pores so a lot of great information on there i cannot recommend clear stem skincare enough it can be difficult to find non-toxic brands that are highly effective and these products are more effective than anything i used to use when i use toxic products and what we put on our skin is incredibly important for our overall health in my eyes your skincare products, your personal care products are just as important as what you are eating. Speaking of what you're eating, I am very excited for you guys to hear today's episode with Lily Nichols. Lily is a registered dietitian, nutritionist. She's a certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author. She is the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Her focus is on evidence-based prenatal nutrition and exercise, and her work is known for being very research-focused, very thorough, and 
unapologetically critical of any outdated dietary guidelines, which is why I love her. She dives deep into the research. She has so many studies to back up everything she says, and she just knows the science behind this in and out, and she has so much clinical experience and personal experience, and I obviously am not an expert on prenatal nutrition. I know a good amount, but that's certainly not my specialty, so I was really excited to have Lily on the podcast to just clear up any confusion to speak to any of you who are interested in becoming pregnant or who are pregnant, because I do know that many of you might be in that boat. I think that sometimes when it comes to nutrition for pregnancy, this can be very controversial. It is you know, very important to take care of yourself always, especially when you are getting ready to or already carrying a child. We all just want to do the best for our children. I mean, I don't have a child, but I'm speaking as I'm speaking for the collective here. But, you know, I've read quite a few books on nutrition for pregnancy and Lily's was definitely my favorite. I felt like it was super easy to understand. It covered all the bases. It was also very in-depth. She had science to back everything up and that's why I was so excited to have her on the show so she can speak to her specialty and let you guys know what you really need to know about nutrition for pregnancy. You can find her on her website lilynicholsrdn.com. Also on Instagram at Lily Nichols RDN and her name is spelled L-I-L-Y-N-I-C-H-O-L-S for Lily Nichols. And hop on to Instagram sometime today and there will be a fun little giveaway if you want to win a copy of her book, Real Food for Pregnancy, which you guys all should get your hands on because it's amazing. Even if you're not already pregnant, it's really helpful information to have and You never know when you'll need it or someone in your life will need it. So just go ahead and check out my Instagram post about this podcast episode to find out all the details. My Instagram handle is at Christina Rice Wellness. In the meantime, though, let's go ahead and hop into this conversation with Lily Nichols. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Lily. I'm so excited to chat with you because as I mentioned before, I definitely am no expert on pregnancy um, and I've been wanting to have somebody on the show to talk about nutrition for pregnancy and lifestyle factors that affect pregnancy and all that jazz. So I'm really excited to have an expert such as yourself on the show. So could you just start off by kind of giving a brief introduction to my audience so that they know a bit more about you and kind of how you got into this specialty? Absolutely. So uh, my My formal education is as a registered dietitian and nutritionist and a certified diabetes educator, although I always like to give the um, disclaimer that I'm like a real food dietitian, so I'm not pushing, (laughs) you know, food pyramid stuff on people. Uh, Most of my work has been in the prenatal space, ranging from public policy to clinical practice, research, and consulting, and where this has really led my work is to uncover how many gaps there are between the current conventional guidelines on prenatal nutrition um, and how we can optimize nutrition for pregnancy and for a baby's development. So now my work is really all about helping people, clinicians, the general public, everybody understand all the ways that we can benefit our experience of pregnancy. So it's 
more enjoyable. So baby gets all the nutrients needed to develop optimally. Um, and a lot of that is, is different than what people have been taught. So people tend to know my work for being really heavily research focused because anytime you're doing anything different than convention, you have to back your stance with current science um, and really kind of pushing the boundaries on prenatal nutrition. Yeah, and especially surrounding pregnancy because, I mean, it's a very emotional topic with people. It's almost like, you know, when you talk about how to raise kids or things like that, you know, especially with yeah. pregnancy because um, you have to be careful because sometimes people interpret advice or information as, like, shaming if they're doing something else. Um, right. So that's why I love why you're so research-focused and you give, like, I mean, in your book, so many references and studies. You can look everything up. Very thorough. So really love that. Um, but have you always been, like, interested in pregnancy and, like, prenatal nutrition, or did you specialize in anything else before that? Well, I mean, as a dietitian, you have to kind of be trained in all the things. Mm -hmm. But one of my first jobs as a dietitian was with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which most people know as Sweet Success. And that is focused primarily on gestational diabetes, but any type of diabetes in pregnancy. And that's what really sort of lit a fire under me to continue in this path. I learned some really crazy statistics in my work there, like children at age 13 whose mothers had uncontrolled blood sugar in pregnancy, they face a six-fold higher risk of obesity or type 2 diabetes. Wow. So this like surge in childhood obesity and diabetes and metabolic disease is in some way linked back to... The, the environment that they were exposed to in utero. And for me, that was, that was huge. Not only is, not only are we helping mothers have like better, less complicated pregnancies by helping them manage their blood sugar, but also potentially you're, you're affecting the next generation's health. And to me, that was really profound. I mean, I had heard that before, but to see it like highlighted in modern nutrition research and not just in, you know, the work of Weston Price and some of these more like ancestral philosophies was um, really seminal in, in what kept me going in this field. Yeah, that's a crazy statistic. Um, can we talk more about gestational diabetes? And maybe you can just explain to the audience in case they don't know what that is. How is that different than other types of diabetes and kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah. So gestational diabetes, it has, you know, the word gestational in there to refer to during pregnancy. It's elevated blood sugar that's either first recognized or first develops during pregnancy. Uh, so that, I mean, that's the simplest way to define it. Mm -hmm. And it's the issue with having elevated blood sugar in pregnancy is that under, under, I don't want to use the word normal because like who's normal, but <laughs> yeah. under physiologically normal circumstances, we expect the body to adapt to pregnancy and actually experience lower blood sugar than usual, which a lot of people are not um, aware of. So during gestational diabetes, when you have elevated blood sugar levels, it can throw off a number of different processes um, from happening properly. So it can um, really speed up 
fetal growth. So you tend to have larger babies. They can have issues with lung development. There can be issues with their development of their pancreas, where their pancreas is larger and produces more insulin. They believe some of this is related to their future risk of um, developing diabetes later in life. Um, so there's a number of risk factors that can happen if the blood sugar isn't well controlled. And then on the other hand, when we do get it into the normal range, and much of this can be done with food and lifestyle, there's always going to be cases where medication or insulin are necessary, but food and lifestyle are the first line therapy for GD. Then you see the the rates of these complications or risks go way, way down. Sometimes they're no different than somebody who doesn't have an official diagnosis of gestational diabetes. So it's a it's a promising field to work in because there's just so much that can be done. It's also in terms of like not only baby's health, but mom's long-term health. We know that gestational diabetes is the number one predictive factor for predicting type two diabetes later in life. So if you, it's kind of like the warning light coming on in your car, like, Oh, something's kind of up with your blood sugar metabolism. And it's, yeah, your blood sugar might be okay for a while, but within five years to 10 years after delivery, 30 to 70% of you are going to end up with type 2 diabetes. That means you have this window of time to work on all these other food and lifestyle factors to lower that risk. And for me, that's also really huge because right now, like half, literally half of Americans have some form of diabetes or prediabetes, and most of them are undiagnosed. So we yeah. just cat a lot of the blood sugar issues in pregnancy because we're actually screening for it. Um, but it's a, it's a huge window for prevention of type two diabetes later in life. Yeah. And I'm glad you pointed out that it's so undiagnosed because I mean, I think a lot of us come across this in the nutrition space. People will say, I feel great. I have no health issues. And it's just, I mean, do you really not have any? You're just unaware of them. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. What labs have you actually run? It's like, when people say they don't have any nutrient deficiencies, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Determine that you have nutrient deficiencies, and it's like iron. <laughs> okay, you're not iron deficient. Good job. Exactly, and and then like even people are like, they think it's normal to be hangry all the time and to like feel like they're gonna faint a few hours after their meal and things like that. And I'm like, okay, this is just you're not aware. Um, but let's talk more about the dietary and lifestyle changes a woman could make if she finds that she has gestational diabetes or to prevent it? Yeah, so the first half is easy to tackle. The second half is like the million dollar question <laughs> that we don't have perfect answers on, but I'll, I'll give you some, some of the best information we have on helping to prevent it. Um, so if you have been, you have high blood sugar that's been identified in pregnancy, the the first thing really to do is to start looking at your blood sugar numbers. So they usually will give you a meter and blood sugar strips where you like poke your finger, get a little blood on a test strip, and it'll give you a blood sugar reading. And observing when that number is high and what you have eaten before that led to the elevated number. That That in and of itself could fix the whole issue granted yeah. it is like really helpful to also have some background information on like these are the things that typically raise your blood sugar so you're not 
picking on the wrong foods for the ones that caused your blood sugar spike. So say you have like, you know, egg, an egg and toast and a glass of orange juice or something for breakfast and you have high blood sugar afterwards and you're like, oh my gosh, the egg did this to me. Well, it actually wasn't the egg because egg is mostly protein with a little bit of fat. Those don't, those are macronutrients that just don't raise your blood sugar um, very much or at all. It was probably the bread or the juice or the combination of the two or the portion size of the two of them that had the, the bigger effect on your blood sugar. So we do need to help people understand, you know, the foods that raise your blood sugar are the foods that are high in carbohydrates. These are those foods. And when you're looking at fine tuning what balance of the three macronutrients, your fat, protein and carbohydrates you're having at a meal that are going to work for you, if you're seeing elevated blood sugar after a meal, you can usually pretty much go back and, and pinpoint that it was too many carbohydrates. It's, Mm -hmm. it's not fat and protein. That's, (laughs) that's the problem for blood sugar issues. Um, so that's, first of all, is just understanding what raises your blood sugar and why, and then fine tuning based on the response you're getting from the meter, um, what your carbohydrate tolerance is like, because it's different for every person. And that's probably the most frustrating part about gestational diabetes for people is that there's not just one meal plan that's going to work for everybody. There's not one level of carbohydrates that's going to work for everybody. And that is frustrating because there's a period of adjustment of a couple weeks where you need to figure that out and you're going to have highs and it's going to be scary or frustrating or whatever. And you just kind of have to get through that initial phase and you'll get into a a happier, steady state once you figure some of that stuff out. Um, I'll probably leave it at that because that's going to be the the basic, you know, of it for most people. As far as preventing gestational diabetes, it's a little tricky because not all risk factors for gestational diabetes are things that are within our control such as your age, your heredity or genetics, family history of type 2 diabetes would also up your risk. Um, Some of those things you can't change. You just, you were dealt that hand of cards. You are a certain age and you are now pregnant. And, you know, most people, their insulin resistance, or in other words, their ability to tolerate large amounts of carbohydrates um, usually goes down with age, not always, but that's why the age factor um, comes up. On the other hand, there there are things that you can do. There are micronutrients that affect your blood sugar balance. There are um, foods that can affect your weight. And granted, if you're already pregnant, you know you can't go back and rewind the clock six months and like lose ten pounds or something before you get pregnant. But you can mitigate the amount of um, weight you're gaining during pregnancy with some some dietary and lifestyle choices without like starving yourself, by the way, because I think a lot of people go there, but you don't have to starve yourself. You can still eat plenty to stay satisfied and still have healthy blood sugar numbers. So I want to point that out. Um, There's also, when it comes to the micronutrients, there's things like vitamin D and magnesium that play a role in reducing insulin resistance. So that's something that is worth looking at. Uh, Exercise. So the more active you are, there's a significantly lower risk of gestational diabetes. Or if you've been already diagnosed, 
you can greatly improve your blood sugar numbers with exercise. So there's a lot of things that affect our blood sugar balance that um, go beyond just food that we can look at. Yeah. Okay. I want to touch on the topic of like gaining weight during pregnancy and caloric intake because I mean, there are so many ideas or things I've heard. Okay. And so I want to hear it from you. So how much more should a woman be eating when she's pregnant slash like what is a quote normal or let's not say normal healthy amount of weight to gain during pregnancy? Yeah, so as far as the amount of extra food you need per day, believe it or not, that's actually still a topic up for debate. Mm. Our guidelines would like to tell us that somewhere in like the three to 500 calorie range extra, there is actually some research showing it can be as little as 70 extra calories a day. Wow. And a lot of this really depends on how active a person is what their weight is like preconception, because like your, your weight gain goals are going to be different. Like if you start your pregnancy at a lower weight, it's actually healthier to gain slightly more weight during pregnancy. Whereas if you start your pregnancy at a higher weight, we actually observe the best pregnancy outcomes when weight gain is fairly limited. So the, you know, that will also factor into how much extra energy to eat per day. So there is some researchers who do sort of a play on words on the eat, eating for two idea and say it should actually be eating for 1.1 <laughs> because it's not that much more energy. Um, really what I like to pull people back to is mindful eating mm-hmm. because your body is naturally, if we can assume there's this broad range of maybe 70, maybe 500 calories. And I'm sure there's some people who are outliers outside of that as well. The only thing that's within your control is, or that you have the option to do is to either listen to your hunger cues or not listen to your hunger cues. Right. And so if your body is more hungry, you can just naturally assume that your energy needs are up at that time. There may be other times in pregnancy where you notice your hunger levels aren't aren't out of the ordinary. Maybe they were just like they were pre-pregnancy, but your body will kind of guide you, you know, Mm -hmm. usually first trimester when technically energy needs are assumed to not have gone up. People usually aren't, they just don't want to eat that much. You have nausea, you have food aversions. You're probably not necessarily eating more calories than usual. Um, And then as pregnancy progresses, you might have different periods of time where you're very hungry and other times where your hunger levels are a little more moderate and just, you know, listen to your body. It's, it's not going to um, veer you off course. Mm-hmm. What I prefer people look at instead of just calories is like the, the nutrient density of your diet. Because what does increase is your need for a number of different micronutrients like vitamin A and iron and iodine and DHA and choline. And so it's, it's about improving the quality of what you're eating and the micronutrient content of what you're eating versus just eating more for the sake of eating more. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you want me to expand upon weight gain, but we can talk about, you know, the different ranges for weight gain if you think that would be helpful. Yeah, I I would love for you to talk about that. Um, And also, I just want to say for people listening, because like you're coming at this from you've done a ton of research around this, but you've also been pregnant. 
Um, right. So it's like, you also have personal experiences. So people listening, cause I know sometimes people will hear and they say, Oh, well it's different when you're researching versus actually being pregnant. But like, you've also been pregnant. So, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. So I have a three year old. I'm actually currently pregnant right now. So second time around. Um, so yes. And I've worked <laughs> clinically one-on-one with hundreds of women. So, you know, there is a difference when you're seeing it, what you're reading in the research versus, talking to actual human beings versus feeling things in your body. Like it, it's, it's helpful to have actually all of that ideally um, working for you to better understand just, I don't know, all of the uncertainty that goes along with pregnancy. Cause there's a lot of things that we know from research. There may be a lot of things that you observe in practice. If your, you know, number of clientele that have been pregnant is like five you're going to have a different viewpoint of pregnancy than you are if your client base is like 500 plus, you know, so Definitely. That, that's all different. Also, we have to be sure that our own pregnant pregnancy experience doesn't fully color everything we're doing because there's just such a, a broad array of experiences of mm-hmm. pregnancy in and of itself. So to bring it to the pregnancy weight gain side of things. Um, what was interesting for me in clinical practice was that, um, at the perinatology practice I used to work at, we would, we would monitor weight gain on a little graph and they, they have different graphs for different BMI categories. So people who start their pregnancy in the quote, normal BMI category, um, you have like a 25 to 35 pound range for weight gain during your pregnancy. Whereas somebody who's in the overweight category has like a 15 to 25 pound range. And then there's different ranges as you go above and below that. So what's funny about these graphs is it shows this like perfect line, you know, of like, this is the amount of weight you will gain every week. And this is what's normal. And then outside of this is abnormal, right? Mm -hmm when you actually chart people's weight gain throughout pregnancy, it never follows the graph. It's sometimes, sometimes pretty close, but oftentimes it's a little bit above or a little bit below, or maybe somebody has really severe nausea and it's like way below where you'd think it would be. And then somebody for whatever reason is gaining weight quicker than you expect at one time in pregnancy. And they're above that range. And people can get kind of obsessive about, the numbers where for me, I mean, yes, we do have like research data showing it's generally beneficial to gain within these Institute of Medicine weight gain ranges, but it's not because of the weight. It's because the weight is a proxy of the quality of your diet. Mm -hmm. So like you're usually not going to be way below the weight gain ranges if you're eating a sufficient amount of food, yeah, you're usually not going to be way, way above the weight gain ranges if you're eating a sufficient but not excessive amount of food, you know? So it's, and also it comes down to like diet quality as well. So if you're eating, you know, really high amount of refined carbohydrates, so like things made with white flour and white sugar, especially the added sugars, the the amount of weight, like the average weight gain in that group of women is often like 20 pounds, sometimes more 
than the group that doesn't overeat refined carbohydrates. Wow. So, you know, diet quality does play some part of a role. Um, Quantity of food plays some kind of a role. Activity levels, of course. And then for me, like nutrient density of the diet, because that corresponds directly with the refined carbohydrate intake. So Mm -hmm. like the less you go overboard on the white bread and the pasta and the pizza and the sugar, the more room you have in your diet for the meats and the fish and the vegetables and the fruit and the nuts and the seeds and the the things that have more nutrition in them. Right. So Mm -hmm. it all is a proxy of diet quality and like how closely a person is mindful eating. I find for the most part, people do gain pretty close to the ranges if their, if their diet quality is, is on point. And what are those ranges? (laughs) So for a person who's starting their pregnancy underweight, you're looking at 28 to 40 pounds. Mm-hmm. For somebody starting in the normal, quote, normal BMI range, you're looking at 25 to 35 pounds. For somebody who is in the overweight BMI category, you're looking at 15 to 25 pounds. And then it gets a little wishy-washy in the categories above that. Yeah. And I don't like the word, but the BMI category is obese. Um, they recommend 11 to 20 pounds, although there's some data showing that, um, no weight gain or weight loss in people who are in the higher obese categories actually have the best pregnancy outcomes. So it depends on like, you know, if you're like 50, 80 pounds overweight, um, starting your pregnancy, then you might be in a category where actually no weight gain is beneficial in the pregnancy. Which sounds crazy to people, but as somebody who's worked with a lot, a lot, a lot of people in this category, that often actually just happens naturally. Interesting. If you're focusing on diet quality. What does it mean if, okay, first of all, just like for you for reference, I think, I mean, most of the people listening to this podcast are already following real food diets. Um, Right. But what does it mean if someone is like normal BMI and they don't really their weight doesn't really change that much. Like they put on like five or 10 pounds. Well, what's interesting about that is there's the weight gain ranges for different countries are different. (laughs) So like I'm usually focusing on the U S guidelines because that's what it is. That's where, that's where I live. Um, however you look at, you know, nutrient ranges in different countries, weight gain ranges for pregnancy, and they're actually different by different countries. So, um, in other countries, a like quote, normal BMI recommended weight gain range might be as low as like 18 pounds. Oh, wow. And then I believe the highest outside of the U S is, um, up to 33 pounds. Okay. You see a wide range of, you see a wide range of, of weight gain in different people. And we don't entirely know why, because weight is something that is, it's not entirely within our control. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes it just, our weight does what it's going to do. As long as a person is eating sufficient amount of food, so like energy, calories, and sufficient amounts of their macronutrients, particularly protein, and enough of their micronutrients, I'm... And on top of that, they're like listening to their hunger and fullness cues and truly 
practicing mindful eating. I'm not too concerned if somebody's gaining above or below. It's pretty rare for me to observe a person in the normal BMI category to only gain five or 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. I've seen like 15 pounds, 18 pounds, 20 pounds, and still have totally healthy pregnancies, full term, normal size babies, seven, eight, nine pounds, you know, Mm -hmm. um, in that range of weight gain, maybe their body is just more efficient at like shunting nutrients for the baby and they're not accruing as much like maternal fat stores in pregnancy, that might be their body's norm. Um, I do tend to see more of the not gaining a, a greater quantity of weight or, or the no weight gain, potentially even weight loss in, in the higher BMI categories with the idea that there are some maternal stores, energy stores already that they can draw from during pregnancy. And you have, you have like a pretty efficient metabolism on your side in pregnancy, you know, you're just Mm -hmm. burning more energy growing a baby than you normally do. So if your um, food intake hasn't gone up to significantly to exceed that, you might actually lose weight over the course of pregnancy. Interesting. Okay, so I want to talk more about, you know, like, um, the nutrient density in the diet and micronutrients, um, and what people should really be focusing on, um, like superfoods and pregnancy, like what nutrients do you recommend people really pay attention to when they are pregnant? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of them. I mean, this could go on for like three hours, but I'll highlight some of the ones that I don't think get enough airtime. Yeah. You know, we all know about folate or folic acid, like, yes, eat your leafy greens. Yes. Take your prenatal vitamin, get your legumes and avocados and liver and all that stuff is going to be really high in folate. Um, But what we don't talk about a lot is some of the complementary nutrients that work alongside folate to do a lot of the same good things that folate does. I mean, one of the main reasons they focus so much on folate in our guidelines is that it helps reduce the chances you'll have a baby with a neural tube defect, and it also helps with brain development. So it's it's a good thing. It's doing a lot more than that, but those are like the big reasons that it's talked about. Mm-hmm. The one that's not talked about a lot is choline. And choline is a B vitamin-like compound that works right alongside folate. I call it folate's long-lost cousin that um, is also involved in the prevention of neural tube defects and methylation and like the creation of baby's DNA and all of these important processes that we usually just attribute to folate. No, there's like a whole range of other micronutrients that support that process. And we're just finding out now from some newer uh, randomized controlled trials on supplementation that higher intakes of choline, we're talking like double what our current recommendations are, are actually optimal for pregnancy outcomes, for baby's brain development, for the prevention of pregnancy complications like preeclampsia. And this is a big deal because our guidelines thus far that have been pushing us to avoid foods high in cholesterol also have just accidentally had us avoiding our richest sources of choline, Mm. which are egg yolks and liver, very high in cholesterol, also the most nutrient-dense sources of choline in the diet. So if you're a person who 
Not many people eat liver, even though it's like fantastic for you. I have a whole section on why liver is great in the book. Um, For most people, they're going to be getting their choline from eggs. And so if you don't eat eggs or you don't eat them often, that that is something that you want to consider looking at. How much are you actually getting from your diet? Um, Aside from eggs and liver, you're going to be looking at meat, fish, poultry, Dairy products are going to be your richest sources. And then second to that, you'll get small amounts in like nuts, seeds, legumes, beans, and um, certain cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower. Um, It's going to take a lot of those foods to meet your needs compared to an egg. But nonetheless, just for completeness, you're, you're getting little amounts in a lot of places in your diet. So that's something where if you're not getting enough, you probably want to consider a supplement because the data is so strong mm-hmm. on choline. Let's see, what other nutrients can we talk about? We could talk about um, vitamin B12. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are aware of vitamin B12, but maybe maybe they don't know just how vital it is to pregnancy. So it's another one of those things that's involved in brain development. It's another one of those things that's involved in creation of baby's DNA and methylation, like changing how, changing in a positive way the expression of a baby's DNA, which can lower their risk of developing chronic diseases later in life. We have some recent, uh, it was a rat or a mouse study I was reading where sufficient vitamin A in pregnancy was um, predicted like better blood sugar metabolism, a lower risk of obesity, better blood pressure, and a whole host of factors that affected the rat pups' uh, metabolic health for the rest of their life. So there's something going on there. Um, It's also helpful for the prevention of uh, preterm birth um, as well, so it can reduce your risk of complications. So B12 is something that uh, I think a lot of people know is only found in animal foods, unless you're somebody who eats dirt um because that's an argument that people give me is that well it's in the dirt it's like well yeah I don't know how much dirt you're eating um I can't believe people say that it's uh it's found in certain types of algae but if you really start to dig into the literature on it it's only in um certain types of raw freshly harvested seaweed and by the time it's dried the B12 in it converts to B12 analogs, which are unusable and actually block the action of true vitamin B12 in your body. So nonetheless, all this to say, animal foods are your only reliable source of vitamin B12. (laughs) Okay. Your richest sources of vitamin B12 are going to be organ meats like liver and um, specific shellfish like clams and oysters. And then beyond that, like all your other meat and animal products. Okay. So you're going to be getting some in chicken breast and beef and, um, milk a little bit, um, some in eggs. You're going to be getting it in a variety of animal foods, but it's really concentrated in those few foods I mentioned. So again, that's something where if your diet doesn't include any of those foods, then a supplement is going to be a necessity. Mm-hmm. What they've found in recent studies is our B12 needs are actually a lot higher than the RDA. If you want to maintain sufficient levels in pregnancy, you need at least triple whatever the recommended daily intake is. 
Um, particularly if you're going to supplement, you probably even want to supplement above triple the RDA to, to account for absorption issues with vitamin B12. Um, but it's, it's a, it's an important nutrient, something that can help prevent anemia. It works right alongside iron at maintaining red blood cell production. So if you're feeling very fatigued or weak, um, or you have any signs and symptoms of anemia, that's something that should, but usually isn't. Um, be also screened for in addition to iron. Mm. Okay, well, what, when you say that it's usually not screened for, is there like a list of things you would tell people to make sure you, they get screened for? Yes, and there's a there's a whole chapter on lab tests in um, Real Food for Pregnancy for people who really want to dive in. Mm-hmm. B12 is something you could argue for and against. It's not something I specifically outlined um, in that chapter, but if you follow a vegetarian or vegan diet or have before pregnancy um, or have any history of anemia, I think monitoring for B12 levels would be really helpful. Um, at, At minimum, some of the lab tests I recommend are like checking for iron status. This is usually routinely done, but it depends on exactly which which labs they're going to run for it um testing thyroid hormone levels is big on my list that's something that can um greatly affect your risk of miscarriage if your thyroid hormone levels are off Um, it can also affect baby's brain development so that's a big one vitamin d levels these tend to run low in a lot of people and it's a really 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 easy thing to test for Um, and then testing blood sugar levels. So Mm -hmm. some, one of the many options for testing for gestational diabetes is of course on my list because a lot of my work has been with gestational diabetes, but I go through, um, pros and cons of different testing options and, and your options for which methods you want to use to screen for that. Okay, great. And then kind of, you're talking about B12 and animal products. Are there any other main things to be aware of if somebody is on a vegetarian or vegan diet? Because I kind of would like for you to just touch on that and how that type of diet could affect pregnancy. Yeah, so this is uh, this is a controversial topic, obviously, because mm-hmm. people get very... Um, food choices become very religious. emotional. And yeah, you could <laughs> use the word religious. Um, on this topic, there's a 10 page section in my book called the challenge of a vegetarian diet during pregnancy. And it's something I spent a lot of time researching and writing because I wanted to do so from a very objective standpoint. And as somebody who has previously been vegetarian and is friends to many vegetarian and vegan people, I know how triggering the -hmm. conversation gets, right? So um, how I approach that section is that I talk about which nutrients might be challenging to obtain on a vegetarian diet or insufficient quantities or in the correct forms that your body can actually utilize and the data on how likely it is for you to be deficient, how you might be able to meet those nutrient needs from food and then maybe some of the consequences of not getting enough of it. Um, so the, the short list of nutrients that I cover in that section 
And I think it's important to like for people to look at a broad range of nutrients instead of just, I think the focus tends to be like B12 and iron and protein. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Talking about those are like surface level nutrients. Like, yeah, 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 we get that. But some of the ones that even the vegetarian nutrition practice groups don't mention are ones that are on my radar because I'm aware of more, just more of the data on pregnancy more of the micronutrients that are just missing from our guidelines. So um, definitely B12 is on the list, choline, glycine, which is a amino acid that becomes conditionally essential in pregnancy, preformed vitamin A, also called retinol, vitamin K2, DHA, iron, and zinc. Okay. So I, I do feel that it's possible on a vegetarian diet to meet most of your nutrient needs. Um, with food and careful supplementation, I am not convinced that that's possible on a vegan diet and it's probably too long of a conversation to really dive into here, but I go through all the rationale and the research on it, um, in this section of the book. And then I also have a a pretty lengthy section of all the tips to optimize a vegetarian diet. If you opt to continue, um, eating that way. So you could just, you know, again, give yourself the best chances that we don't end up with any, uh, nutrient deficiencies. Yeah, definitely. So people will need to pick up the book to read the whole section. It's really thorough. Um, which I love. I also, I want to circle back to the folate conversation for a second. Um, yeah. Can you just, in case people aren't aware, can you explain the difference between folate and folic acid and what people should be looking for? Yeah. So um, folate is a broad term that refers to vitamin B9. Folic acid is the syn- synthetic version of folate. It's the one that we manufacture in a lab and put in supplements. And at least in the United States and several other countries, we fortify into our um, refined grain products. Mm -hmm. The issue with folic acid is that it's really well absorbed by your body, meaning like your intestines absorb it very efficiently but it's not necessarily well utilized by your body because there's a lot of different steps in your metabolism. There's a lot of different like little tiny chemical reactions that need to take place to make it metabolically active. And some people don't have an issue with this, but approximately 40 to 60% of the population have a variation in their genetics in an enzyme called MTHFR that reduces their ability to utilize folic acid. And in those cases, and like many of us are, have this genetic variation or mutation, myself included, um, those of us who do have an MTHFR variation do better with the type of folate that's more metabolically active, which is methylfolate, or or in addition to, I should say, the folate that naturally occurs in food. So Mm -hmm. uh, leafy greens, liver, legumes, and avocado are some of the like the richest sources of uh, of folate in our diet. Gotta get that liver in. (laughs) It's so good. Um, It's Uh, like, have a whole section on liver. I mean, it's a fantastic superfood. 
it's something that like, if you can sneak it in, in really tiny amounts, just hidden in other ground meat dishes in your Mm -hmm. diet, you are like, vastly enhancing your micronutrient intake. But it's something that a lot of us didn't grow up eating, and is really scary for people to incorporate into their diet. So well, the people who listen to this podcast know I eat a lot of liver. (laughs) And I'm all on the liver train. And I just think the easiest way it's just like, you can grind it up and put it smash it in with a pound of ground beef and you don't even notice, you know, you can totally do it. Put some red sauce on it, put some marinara on it. Put some Um, marinara, put some Indian spices. Um, Yeah, you just need like a lot of spices on it. And it's it's great. Like they have a lot of recipes in real food for pregnancy that I call it hidden liver. Mm-hmm. I use like hashtag hidden liver on, on Instagram. Um, there's a lot of recipes in there where I have it hidden in dishes and people are like, wow, I, I didn't even taste it in this meatloaf. I'm like, yeah. And it makes <laughs> the meatloaf actually more delicious, you know, and it's just in a, the right quantity. It, it enhances the flavor. It doesn't make it off putting. And I think people are really surprised by that. Yeah, exactly. So they need to get your book and try out the recipe, everyone, because you need more liver in your diet. Um, but I mean, related to that conversation, I think prenatals um, are like a little scary for women to pick. And I'm just curious, do you have a favorite prenatal? I do. And actually, there's a list in um, chapter six, there's a link out to my recommendations. I'll just say my my top one, though, is Seeking Health Optimal Prenatal. Mm-hmm. It is uh, by far the most comprehensive one on the market. And when you start digging into nutrient needs of pregnancy, I remember I'd like find this study on B12 and be like, oh my God, we need more B12 or, oh my gosh, we need more choline or we need more of this or we need more vitamin B6. And then I'd like go back to that prenatal and I'm like, oh, Ben Lynch already designed it like that. (laughs) Convenient. Thank you. Um, it's a great quality one. Um, I would just say that people are sometimes turned off by A, the price tag, and B, the quantity of capsules needed. Yeah. And that's just, it's kind of par for the course if you're looking for a really complete prenatal. This one has like a decent amount of choline, magnesium, and calcium. All three of those are very bulky nutrients. Mm-hmm. So they take up more space in capsules, meaning you have more capsules that you need to take for a daily dose. And some of the nutrients, especially when you're putting them in, in the optimal forms, the ones that your body can really utilize very well, regardless of all your genetic weirdness that we all, we all have, mm-hmm. by the way, um, when you're using like the most metabolically active B vitamins, for example, those are also more expensive. So you're paying for quality, but I, I personally think it's it's well worth it. I would agree. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to kind of talk about macronutrients for a second. Um, because I think this is a debated topic that I see. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's all this talk about, I mean, especially with keto being so popular now, like is keto Mm -hmm. safe for pregnant women? And then I read these things where they say, you know, don't eat too much protein because it's, it's dangerous for pregnant women. Mm -hmm. And then you have people saying, don't eat too many carbs because you don't get GD. And you know, there's just a lot rolling around. Mm -hmm. So, so what Mm -hmm. would you say regarding that whole conversation and like what women should be thinking about when it comes to macronutrient ratios? A lot of this has been colored by 
my opinions on this have been colored by my experience working with pregnant people, especially gestational diabetic women, um, the carbohydrate requirements and our conventional guidelines are just way too high. Mm-hmm. So it's like 45 to 65% of calories, which is 250, 270 to like 420 grams per day, depending on how many calories you need. That's a lot of carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And that's not only an issue when there's any potential blood sugar things going on, which is extremely common. I mean, elevated blood sugar is the most common pregnancy complication by far. Um, But the more carbohydrates your diet contains, the less room there is for more nutrient-dense foods that are supplying these very micronutrients that we've been talking about. And this is not just my opinion and my nutrient analysis. It's like we have studies showing micronutrient intake in pregnancy is dependent upon the quantity and quality of carbohydrates that people are eating. So I don't think carbohydrate needs need to be nearly as high as they are. Um, I think they can be at a level, maybe a quarter or half of what our current recommendations are, which leaves more room for protein, which by the way, our first ever study to estimate protein needs in pregnancy was done four years ago. And they found that our guidelines underestimate protein requirements by 73%. Oh my God. (laughs) Protein needs are higher than we thought, first of all. Um, And again, that's going to be kind of, you know, all of our, the balance of our three macronutrients is like the amount of one is dependent upon the amount of another, right? So Um, more protein, a little less carbs. You don't have to go crazy restrictive, but if you are facing blood sugar issues, you probably want to be on the lower end of the range. Um, and then fat, our guidelines have always been very pro low fat diets, which automatically makes them high carb, of course. Mm -hmm. But the more you limit the amount of fat you can eat, the more you're limiting your intake, particularly of a lot of these animal foods, high choline foods um, that are giving you, again, those micronutrients we need. So if you restrict your fat, you're also restricting your vitamin A. You're restricting your vitamin K. You're restricting your vitamin E. You're restricting your choline, your B12, your iron, your zinc, your B6. A lot of these nutrients are found in highest amounts in foods that also just happen to contain fat but we have sort of ousted them from our diets, um, particularly in just sufficient quantities because we've been so afraid of fat or so afraid of cholesterol. So I think we need to shift our understanding of all these different um, ratios Mm -hmm. so that people have, I think it's a more balanced intake. It's certainly more, uh, more satiating when you're eating sufficient amounts of fat and protein and still have some carbohydrates, but they're not like the central part of your meal. Um, it's just more satisfying. You have better energy levels. You're not crazy hungry all the time and craving sugar. It's just, it's a, it's a a, a nice place to be. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious though. So, I mean, obviously we're talk about how 
the recommendations for like 250 grams to 450 grams a day is too high but is there a point where you reach that is too low for pregnancy um I'm like especially in the real food space I hear some people you know saying like oh if you're low carb and you get pregnant you need to increase your carbs can women stay low carb uh, for me, I let A, blood sugar levels, mm-hmm. and B, micronutrient intake, both of those, not mutually exclusive, dictate where where we end up in the carb range. Mm-hmm. So I think people can get uh, restrictive in carbohydrates just for the sake of being restrictive in carbohydrates without thinking about why they're restricting carbohydrates Mm -hmm. and also like what foods are you restricting in order to meet your carbohydrate goals Mm -hmm. whatever those are so yes there's a point where you can go so low in carbohydrates that you might end up lacking in micronutrients and that happens typically if you're like very strict keto where your carb intake is really, really limited to the point where you are intentionally measuring or limiting your portions of non-starchy vegetables, nuts, seeds, avocados, and like berries. Like these are all sources of carbohydrates, but they have relatively few carbohydrates relative to their portion sizes. Whereas like bread, rice, pasta, like they have a lot more carbs mm-hmm. per serving size. Um, and also those those first group of foods I mentioned also happen to be really high in micronutrients. So if your carb needs are, or what you think your carb needs are, are so low that you're limiting the amount of spinach you have in your salad, or you're like, oh, can only eat a quarter cup of nuts because I'm hitting my carb limit. Um, particularly for people who are minimizing their carbohydrate intake based on total carbohydrates versus net carbs. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a bigger issue. Um, if you're looking at net carbs, you're taking into account that some of the carbohydrates you're eating are a source of fiber and you subtract the fiber from your total. This allows you to like, you know, an avocado, for example, like that has like 14, 14 or so grams of carbs, I believe, but most of it is fiber. Mm-hmm. So if like you've set your carb goals at like 30 grams, like you've used almost half of them on an avocado, but wait a minute, it's mostly fiber, which isn't impacting your blood sugar. So why are you concerned? Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I do think people can take it to extremes and end up with some micronutrient deficiencies if they take it too far. I think if you're more in the range of like 90 ish total carbs and you can subtract your fiber to get your net carb total, you really don't end up with a micronutrient problem if you're eating real food. Okay. Your version of keto is like, you know, Cool Whip and peanut butter, which, and like bulletproof coffee, then like, yeah, there's a serious problem. You're not even eating nutrient dense <laughs> aside from the peanut butter. You're not eating enough micronutrients. That's a problem. Um, if your keto version of keto is low protein, that's a problem. Um, if your version of keto is a little more liberal in carbs, is allowing enough non-starchy vegetables, is allowing nuts and seeds, is allowing a little bit of fruit, um, you're you're much less likely to run into an issue. Okay, so let's like say someone is doing a, a healthier, a micronutrient dense version of 
keto, are there, is there any research behind, like, does the mother being in ketosis during pregnancy affect anything? Like, assuming it's, a, like, the he- a healthier version, of, as we discussed. Yeah, so, um, well, you're asking the right person, because I'm the person who's written probably most extensively on, <laughs> on ketosis and pregnancy. Um, the whole last chapter of my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, is all about low-carbohydrate and uh, ketosis and pregnancy. Mm. So, ketosis, nutritional ketosis, low-level nutritional ketosis, the type that you go into when your diet doesn't contain a ton of carbohydrates, but still contains sufficient amounts of energy, fat, protein, micronutrients, all that. That is just a natural state your body goes into during pregnancy anyways. Mm. It's really nothing to worry about. 30% of the fetal brain um, gets its energy derived directly from ketones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it also relies on glucose and other fuels, but there's this idea that ketones are automatically bad for baby, and it, it doesn't make sense because pregnant women are three times more likely to be in ketosis than non-pregnant women. Interesting. It's just just the nutritional, it's just just physiologically normal. You're going to go in and out of ketosis in pregnancy. If you're eating a high-carbohydrate diet, it's probably not going to happen as often during the day, but it definitely happens overnight, probably almost every single night, uh, particularly in the second half of pregnancy. Wow, I did not know that. That's so interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I don't think, so it, I get into this sticky situation. I was just speaking at low carb Denver and talking about low carb in pregnancy. And, you know, some people take this to mean, well, I need to push my ketones like really high. Cause it's better. Like mm. we don't have data on that. What mm. we have data is that nutritional ketosis happens in pregnancy, not just in humans, all mammals, if you look at, there's a ton of veterinary research, not as much on humans, but there's a lot out there. You're just going to be in mild ketosis. Any extra ketones, you're going to spill off into your urine. Do you need to try really hard to push your ketones high? No, like your ketones are going to be as high as they need to be and your body will excrete the extra. Um, You should not be taking exogenous ketones. You don't need to excessively restrict carbohydrates just for the point of going deeper into ketosis or something. Um, Only limit your carbohydrates to the level that you need to either feel good or maintain your blood sugar balance or keep your micronutrient intake up by eating lots of these good healthy foods like, you know, good quality meat and eggs and fish and non-starchy vegetables and berries and nuts and seeds. Like these are all components of a good quality prenatal diet and you might be in ketosis from time to time. And it's nothing to worry about. Okay, that's super interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I well, talking about you know keto, I want to talk about fat for a second because um, I have actually, strangely enough, I have a lot of friends right now that are pregnant, um, and yep. one one of my friends who's pregnant was asking about pregnancy and fat digestion, how it how it affects that because she was saying it feels harder to digest fat during pregnancy and she doesn't know if that means she should limit it or should she take ox bile or like does pregnancy affect fat digestion in that way or is that just an anomaly for her it may be for her specifically because mm. not everybody has not everybody runs into that issue okay. um i will say that pregnancy does put 
an extra strain on your liver. And you're also technically, you're like sharing the nutrient load that your, your liver would like to have a certain supply of nutrients, but you're also sharing that with the placenta, which is like a, a temporary liver that you're growing for your baby. So the intake of nutrients that are really important for liver health, like glycine, choline, a number of B vitamins, um, vitamin A, um, those are still really important and that might help with, uh, liver function. Um, digestion wise, some people do find that like foods that are a little bit heavier or fattier, like don't work as well for them during pregnancy, which in that case, just, you know, you can eat less of those foods. It's fine. You can take an ox bile supplement. That's fine. You could take digestive enzymes. That's also fine. You might benefit from a little more acidity with your meals, like um, vinegar, apple cider vinegar, lemon juice, um, and less fluids with your meal. So you're not like diluting your digestive juices as you're eating. And that might help. Um, but it's, it's not unusual, but it's also not a given that fat digestion is going to be a problem. Okay. okay. Is it safe to take hydrochloric acid supplements when someone's pregnant? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. I mean, you'll want to take in the, you know, the minimal, the lowest dose possible because your lower esophageal sphincter, the one that like helps close off your stomach from your esophagus is a little more open. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're over supplementing with HCL, that might be an even more uncomfortable heartburn situation. Mm-hmm. However, if you're taking the right dose, having the right amount of acid in your stomach t- typically improves acid reflux as a whole. And that's kind of the same idea as doing like vinegar or lemon juice, just upping the acidity a little bit of your st- in your stomach so you can digest your proteins better, digest your fats better, um, Mm -hmm. absorb your minerals and vitamin B12 a little better. Okay. And I just want to like nail this down. So regarding protein, women don't need to be afraid of it, right? (laughs) No, no, no. And you should like prioritize getting enough protein for sure. So like an average, an average woman will probably need 80 or so grams of protein in the first trimester, first half-ish of pregnancy uh, minimum, and 100 grams minimum in the latter half of pregnancy. And those needs are not set in stone. It's partially based on your your weight and body size. Also can be influenced by your activity levels, your genetics, Mm -hmm. like many other things. But that's a good sort of basic goalpost to have for yourself. Are there upper limits to that, though? Like, let's say somebody is used to eating a higher-protein diet and they get pregnant. Like, do they need to worry about reducing it at all? Like, let's say someone generally eats, like, 100 to 120 grams a day. No, that's fine. I mean, I think upwards of, you know, 100, even 150, 160 is totally fine. Mm -hmm. It really depends on the person. And also, again, if you're paying attention to mindful eating cues, if your body... So your, your body is like constantly like quote talking to you during pregnancy and telling you what you can or can't eat Mm -hmm. for better or for worse. If your body doesn't need more protein, 
you're going to be specifically averse to protein. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you're, you're not, it's not something that people, um, overconsume. Mm-hmm. Well, we, yeah, go ahead. I'll say one more thing on, on research side of things. The studies that show that, um, high protein intake is a problem in pregnancy are usually, um, rat and mice studies where they're supplementing with protein. And that translates to like 240 plus grams of protein a day, which I've never, never in my practice observed anybody consuming anywhere close that amount. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes more sense. Well, talking about like food aversions and stuff, I mean, I've definitely heard this. Um, I'm curious what you think. I I have some friends who eat like, you know, a paleo diet and they get pregnant and they're like, it's impossible to eat, to eat paleo when you're pregnant because you just can't stomach anything. Um, and you don't want vegetables and you don't want real food. Like, do you ever run into that where people, cause I know your approach to pregnancy is like real food nutrition. And do right. you ever run into that where people say, I just, it all makes me feel sick. The only thing I can stomach are like these unhealthy foods. Oh yeah. Yeah. First trimester is a crapshoot. Okay. Like it's a crapshoot nutritionally. <laughs> um, what I find interesting on the craving aversion aspect is that and this is, this is just anecdotal from what I've observed. I don't have a study on this. But from what I've observed, the people who might be low in iron or haven't been eating a significant amount of animal foods in their diet pre-pregnancy, they will crave the very foods that the people in the like paleo keto groups become averse to. Interesting. <laughs> first trimester. So there's, there seems to be some amount of like nutritional crosstalk. Like, okay we need more iron, we need more B12, like eat a burger, you know? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, these people are like, we're sufficient on that, just eat some carbs. Um, There are, it's all theoretical, but there are theories behind higher carbohydrate cravings in pregnancy. Your insulin sensitivity is super high. In women with type 1 diabetes, their insulin requirements actually drop in the middle of the first trimester before they start going up by the end of pregnancy, they're like double, triple, sometimes more, um, their pre-pregnancy requirements. But there's this like honeymoon period of insulin sensitivity in the first trimester where your blood sugar runs low, your body wants carbs, your metabolism is starting to upregulate. Your thyroid is producing more thyroid hormones there. You have a placenta and like a rapidly dividing embryo with all these new cells and organs and all these things forming. Um, For whatever reason, your body does tend to want more carbs in the first trimester. And that's something that you're just probably not going to be able to fight against. The best thing you can just do is eat the best quality carbs that you could tolerate and try to have them with a little bit of fat and protein. We call it no naked carbs. Like try to have, you know, the only thing your body wants is bread Try to have it with an egg. Try to have it with a piece of cheese. Try to have it with some peanut butter or almond butter or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not riding the crazy blood sugar roller coaster all day long because that tends to make your nausea worse over time. Mm-hmm. But there will be periods of time where the only thing you want to eat is a piece of fruit by itself, crackers by itself, chips by itself. And you just got to roll with it for whatever is going to settle your stomach and not make you hurl for that half hour or hour and then move on and see if like the next time you eat, 
can you fit in something, some food of substance, something yeah. that has a little fat protein? Can you fit in something that has a little bit um, more micronutrients in it? You, you're, you're not always going to win, but you could just continually try. And then for most people, that phase does end. And it's just a miraculous, wonderful thing. That phase has recently ended for me. So I'm like, Oh, like <laughs> salads and protein. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it does end. So eating like paleo or on the, you know, moderately low carb side in the latter, you know, two thirds or latter half of pregnancy is, is often totally doable. Okay. I'm sure that's encouraging for people. I was just curious. Um, and then one other thing I, I wanted you to just touch on is what caffeine in pregnancy, um, what's your stance on that? Yeah, so the research on that is uh, is mixed, mm-hmm. and really they end up kind of going in circles around the same guidelines that have been around for quite a long time, mm-hmm. which is fairly conservative, trying to limit caffeine to about two to 300 milligrams per day, um, depending on which guidelines you're reading. So that means like coffee, one large or two small cups per day of like average strength coffee. If you make your coffee super, super strong, then maybe you're looking at one small cup. Uh Um, Tea, chocolate, um, these other sources of caffeine, natural sources of caffeine are usually not a concern because they're not concentrated enough in caffeine to be an issue. Um, but I would be aware of like energy drinks, um, supplements that have caffeine in it, sodas that have caffeine in it. Like those are often problematic for other reasons, like mass quantities of sugar in them. Yeah. But um, it's generally advisable to, to be pretty moderate in your caffeine intake in pregnancy. Okay. I mean, kind of related to that, I'm curious how pregnancy and birth affects somebody who is going into it with already taxed adrenals? Oh, it's very, very, very challenging. Mm. Yeah. So what can someone do if they know they're pregnant and they already know they are dealing with some adrenal issues? Like what recommendations do you have? Yeah, it's hard because, um, So a lot of the things that people are doing for their adrenals that are like supplements become a little bit questionable Mm -hmm. in pregnancy. Like all the adaptogens become questionable. There's like super mixed views on on like ashwagandha, for example, um, in pregnancy. Although I think you could probably make the case that it would be advantageous in some situations. Um, Certainly keeping in mind the nutrients that are helpful for your adrenals. So like adequate protein, adequate salt, adequate um, electrolytes like potassium. uh, I already said protein, vitamin C, pantothenic acid, like keeping in mind the things that your adrenals really need to thrive. Those Mm -hmm. managing your stress levels, doing the best that you can to, optimize your sleep, which is really hard. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds really difficult. (laughs) Especially at the end when you're not sleeping well, usually because your belly's so big. And then um, you have to pee all the time. And then, you know, postpartum sleep is like, uh, sleep is a distant memory when you're caring for a baby. Um, (laughs) It's hard. 
all I can yeah. say is it's hard. You just have to do the best that you can to like take as many things off your plate and do the things, you know, that are nutritionally helpful for supporting your adrenals. And then, um, possibly work with a practitioner who's familiar with mm-hmm. both the pregnancy side of things and the functional medicine side of things to, to help you out in, in that regard. Yeah. Okay. Well, since you brought up the adaptogens, I'm curious, are there any other like foods that are popular in the health space or usually touted as healthy that are questionable for pregnant women? I mean, ashwagandha usually categorized in like the herb category more than the food category. Um, Food wise. So, you know, I'm a bit rogue on the food stuff because (laughs) I look at the data on like how likely a food is actually going to make you sick or how many toxins, what, what's the level of toxins that's actually in there that's going to be problematic. We're talking like fish and mercury. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the things on the conventional foods to avoid list, I don't, I just don't agree with. Um, and that's, that's covered in chapter four of the book. I will say there are pretty much, you just want to be, have a, a common sense attitude about food safety. Mm-hmm. So, um, I guess some of the things that would be super promoted in health space are like um, a lot of salads or green smoothies. And those are great. I'm all for leafy greens. But if we look at the data on food safety, about half of foodborne illness outbreaks in the U.S. are tied back to fresh produce, mostly leafy greens and fruit. Mm -hmm. So you just want to be like cautious with your salads and your smoothies that like the freshest greens are going into it like yeah take out the yucky brown ones if it smells funny don't eat it um just really really fresh if you can get it from a local grower it's going to be less likely to be contaminated with icky bacteria Uh, but like that's something a lot of people just don't think about it's like greens they're safe you know you go to any other country outside of the u.s and people are scared to eat salad but you go to you know in the u.s we're so pro salad um we do have you know better food safety standards than a lot of places and yeah. less of these, um, you know, GI diseases just from, from eating regular food, but we can get kind of lax on the vegetable part. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise I, I can't really, you know, I can't really think of anything. I think most of the things promoted in the real food health space are, are also a good idea in pregnancy. Okay, cool. I mean, yeah, I was just curious. I didn't know if there was, but the I think that the leafy greens thing is very interesting. Um, I got, I actually, well, I mean, I'm not pregnant, so unrelated, but I got a parasite from a from a smoothie, and like I'm oh pretty, sh- yeah, I'm pretty sure it was because of the greens in the smoothie. <laughs> Jeez, that yeah. sucks. Yeah it, yeah, it sucked, but you know, it happens. Got very ill yeah. and got rid of it, so we're we're fine. Um, hey, well, that's good. <laughs> but I just thought I'd throw it out there. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this. Uh, I I mean, there's so much more to dive into here. Like, obviously, you have your whole book real food for pregnancy and it dives deep into everything so I really recommend everyone get this book um if you're pregnant or want to be pregnant study this book um so if you could just remind everybody where they could find more from you and also obviously everywhere they could get the book yeah so you can find more from me at my main website lilynicholsrdn.com Um, you'll see a tab up there for my books. If you want to check out 
either of those and it links out to all the places that you can buy them, at least like on the internet. There's a lot of local bookstores, um, Barnes and Noble. A lot of people ask their library to carry the books, so you can ask those as well. Um, but Real Food for Pregnancy, we have in you know paperback, Kindle, audiobook. My other book on gestational diabetes, um, we have in paperback and Kindle, and also in Spanish if that's of interest. <laughs> and as far as like elsewhere on the interwebs. I'm most active on social media on Instagram and my handle is the same as my website. So at Lily Nichols RDN. Amazing. Thank you again so much, Lily. I had so much fun chatting with you. Yeah, likewise. Great questions. A huge thank you again to Lily for coming on the podcast. Make sure you check out her book, Real Food for Pregnancy. You can find more from her on her website, lilynicholsrdn.com and also on Instagram at lilynicholsrdn. Make sure you go to my Instagram at Christina Rice Wellness to enter the giveaway to win a copy of her book. Everyone needs it. You will absolutely love it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you share it, post about it on social media, tell your family, tell your friends, and make sure in the podcast Facebook group, Wellness Wellness Podcast Tribe. And if you haven't already, I would love it if you left a rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps me spread the word about the show. And I just want to keep growing this community. That's all I have for you today. I hope you have an amazing rest of your week. Have an awesome weekend. And I will chat with you again next time. Bye.